Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory, Senior Lecturer in Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia, and co-host of this channel. Of all Southeast Asian countries, perhaps it's the modern history of Vietnam that resonates with Westerners the most. This is, of course, due to the catastrophic war fought between 1965 and 1975. Four decades since the end of the war, Vietnam's history still intrigues people. People still want to know what really happened. Today, we're talking to Professor Chris Gosher, who teaches history and international relations at the University of Quebec at Montreal, Canada. He's the author of a prize-winning new book, Vietnam, A New History, published in 2016 by Basic Books. In 2017, the book won the American Historical Association's prestigious John K. Fairbank Prize, and in the same year it was a Kundal History Prize finalist. The book's been praised by leading scholars in the field of Vietnamese and modern Asian history, as well as by respected international media outlets such as The Economist and The Guardian. Chris, thanks for coming on the show and congratulations on the success of your new book. Well, thank you very much, Patrick, and thank you for having me. Before we get on to discuss the book itself, could I start off by asking you to tell us something about why you first became interested in Vietnam, and in particular in the field of Vietnamese history. Well, to start, I'm an American citizen. I've recently become Canadian, but I had no one in my family who participated in the war, neither a father or an uncle. I myself was born in 1965 when the war started, the American War. My interest came somewhat by accident when I left Kansas City, where I grew up, and I I went to Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. And as part of the the curriculum there, we had to take a variety of, of history courses, and I had the luck to study Southeast Asian history. So that's kind of the the first step in my discovery and my interest for Southeast Asia was at undergraduate level. The second thing, again, I was very lucky, is that I had the chance to go to Thailand for, in the American system, it's your third year abroad, what's called your junior year abroad. And um, I was fortunate enough to go to the University of Chiang Mai for about 10 months during that year. So I was in my early 20s, but that further developed my interest for Southeast Asia. 
after Thailand, I came back. I finished up my studies at Georgetown at the School of Foreign Service, and that's also where my interest in international relations comes from. And when I finished my studies, uh, two things happened. One, I was extremely fortunate. I got to be an assistant to Nayan Chanda at the uh, Far Eastern Economic Review, and he was the Washington correspondent at that time. Unfortunately, the Far Eastern Economic Review no longer exists. So I was able to work for Nayan as an assistant. And of course, he was very interested in Indochina. He had been in Saigon when it fell in 1975, and then he covered the Third Indochina War. And so all of this was going on in the the 1980s when I finished up my studies. I wasn't there for the American War, but uh, in a way I was there for the Third Indochina War when communism melted down and the Americans were still involved as well. That drew me towards Vietnam, although I still had an interest in Thailand and the region as well. And in addition to Nayan Chanda's support, I then had the chance to go to Vietnam when Vietnam was opening up in that period right there of 1986, 1987, 1988, and 1989. I was able to go to Vietnam, and I was one of the first um, American students at the time uh, to be able to go there to study in Hanoi at the University of Hanoi. There are already quite a lot of English language histories of Vietnam available. So why did you decide to write a new history of Vietnam? What is new about it? And what did you hope to achieve with the book? The way my career and my studies developed, I was more of a specialist, I would say, of 19th and 20th century Vietnam. So I do want to be honest about that for your listeners who might be interested in in how this history of Vietnam came about. My real interest was in the colonial period and then that war of decolonization or the war of liberation, what we call the the first Indochina war between 1945 and 1954, which is the object of my my PhD thesis at the Sorbonne, which I submitted and defended in two 2000 or 2001. And it was a, it was around 2008-2009 that the editor of Penguin, and then Penguin later on would sell the rights of the first edition of, of this history of Vietnam to basic books uh, in the United States. They, they asked me to write a general history, an accessible history. Uh, I was supposed to keep specialists on board as well. So it was a very tall order, to be honest with you. I was bringing to this my specialties on 19th and 20th century Vietnam, but I also had an interest in this wider global take, regional take. And it was in that context that I said, let's try to do a general history of Vietnam that covers all the bases, but also goes in wider ways. Before we get to some of the detail of the book, could you give the listener a sort of a broad overview of what is in the book? In in terms of the the chronologically, it goes from the beginnings to the present. It goes from the 3rd or 4th century BC up until the beginning of the 21st century. It is thematically organized, but it does run in a chronological order from the past to the present with one notable exception. And that notable exception comes towards the end of the book, this chronological march towards the present. It's kind of a a standard march from northern Vietnam to southern Vietnam. And I follow the Vietnamese, the ethnic Vietnamese, as you, if you like, as they went from the north to the south, as they left the Chinese empire, created their own state in the Red River, their own empire, which they moved to the south. But I also added a chapter where I switched the chronology and I switched the point of view from the ethnic Viet, the, the Red River Viet, the, the beginning of the state in the, in the in the Red River Valley. And I looked at what people who encountered the Vietnamese as they moved south, how they saw history. So you have a chapter towards the end of the book, which some readers 
really liked and some readers did not like because it broke the chronology. But my idea was to give voices to those who were colonized by the expansion of this Vietnamese state towards the south, the Cham the Cambodians, and in the highlands as well. I wanted to get their point of view, much like uh, anyone who writes a history of the United States or Canada, you can't leave out the uh, the Amerindians, the, the Native Americans, if you like, and their story. So one of my goals was to write that history into the book as well. So it moves in a current and then a countercurrent from the past to the present organized around a certain number of themes. One of those themes is the plurality of Vietnam. One of those themes or second theme would be the complex nature of modernity, a desire to move beyond the standard date of 1858 when the French came, a little bit like 1842 when the British came to China or the late 1874, the history of modern Egypt. A third thing that I wanted to do was to talk about imperial Vietnams, that there's not just one colonial history, the the French history, there's also empires are involved long before the French were in this part of the world, long before they were in what we call Vietnam today. I can't resist asking this question. The book is titled Vietnam and New History, you start in the 3rd century BC, while most of the book is focused on the modern period. Why did you feel you needed to go right back to this early period? It is true that the editors asked me to write a history of modern Vietnam. And by modern, they meant what they usually mean, the 19th and 20th century. And in the case of Vietnam and in the case of China, you know, it's when the West comes and then Vietnam, like China, like much of the the non-Western world becomes modern. I have no problem with that. But I, I wanted to write a modern history that went beyond that standard date, as I said a moment ago, of 1858 and allows us to go deeper into the past to pick up on continuities and discontinuities, also to pick up on, on non-Western modernities that were there as well. So those first two chapters and also part of that non-Viet chapter I spoke about a moment ago, the, the Highland chapter or the, the Mekong Delta chapter before the Vietnamese, I wanted to flesh out for the reader that there's a lot going on in this part of the world in what will become Vietnam before 1858. I wanted to show the readers as well as that it's not just a quick context in the introduction or in the first chapter, and then we get on with the real story, which is 1858 and everything else that came after that. I would defend that decision to, to put in two chapters, or at least if you added it all up, it would come up to about 100 pages of a 500-page book on that pre-1858 period viewed from different points of view. And again, I would like to think that that's one of the strengths of my book, that it allows the reader to pick up on things which standard histories skip because they always start in 1858. Those two chapters, which I I don't want to call introductory chapters, if you see what I mean, they're not a mise en contexte, as the French say. They're actually a core part of the book, uh, which allow me to, to flesh out continuities as much as discontinuities. One of the themes throughout the book is Vietnam's historical relationship with China. Often people tend to characterise this relationship as one of resistance or even more conflict on occasions, but your book, I think, depicts it in more complex terms. How? 
the wars for Vietnam, the first Indochina War, the French, the second Indochina War, the Americans, the third Indochina War, at least for the, the Vietnamese in power today, it was against the Chinese. And so there has been a politicization of the relationship with China because of problems in the present, of course. And that would be in particular during the third Indochina War when Vietnamese communists went to war against Chinese communists. And of course, I can give examples in world history up to this date of things like this going on, where it then leads official historians to push the problems of the present way back into the past. And this is what's happened with Vietnam's relationship with China. Vietnamese historians uh, have done it. They, in particular, again, the Third Indochina War pushed them to do it. Western scholars have done it as well to show that we should have, uh, this is the American speaking, but the Americans should have never gone into Vietnam. We the French, we should have never gone into Vietnam either because there's a tradition of heroic resistance against the Chinese, which made it impossible for we, the French, or we, the Americans, and of course, the Vietnamese would say to the Chinese, for you as well, to beat us, you, you, know, you, you, you cannot beat us. The problem is, is that it's not a historical reading of the past. So that's my first answer to your question is that there's a present always informs the past and how certain historians write about the past. And this is nothing new. Uh, all countries do this sort of things, at least on an official level. What got me thinking in different ways was, um, and this might be linked to my, my teaching world history and preparing courses um, on the Roman Empire and the disintegration of the, the Roman Empire, and then preparing courses as well on the Chinese Empire and its relationships with countries on its periphery. This is how I looked at things a little bit differently in terms of Vietnam's relations with China. And it comes down to this, if you look at my earlier chapters and then how I come back to it later. The Roman Empire <laughs> existed for centuries and centuries, more or less from the same time the Han Empire, the Qin Empire came into existence in East Asia. They both came into existence, as we all know, a few centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ, the third, second, first centuries BC. What's interesting for me, though, is that the Roman Empire disintegrated, at least in Europe. In China, that empire disintegrated, but it was always able to reconstitute itself. If you look now at the comparison, and this is what got me thinking differently about Vietnam, there's nothing particularly surprising about a smaller state on the periphery being incorporated into a larger imperial state. That could be the Gauls on the border of the Roman Empire who were eventually incorporated into the Roman Empire. And let's not forget what we roughly consider France today was part of, or at least province of it, it was once part of the Roman Empire for five to six centuries just as this Red River polity was also incorporated into a larger empire to the north, the Chinese empire. The Golds were there for five centuries. The Vietnamese were there for a millennium. Did they resist? Of course they did. Was imperial rule brutal and violent? Of course it was. The Romans could be violent as well as the Chinese could be violent. One of the things that I try to show, though, is that empires also circulate things. They circulate people, they circulate ideas, they circulate cultures, they circulate languages, they circulate writing systems. So this comparison allowed me to kind of complicate things a little bit more. But at the same time, I hope, and this is one of the big wishes in my book, it allowed him to make it more interesting because these imperial connections are violent and brutal, and they do create resistance. There's no doubt about that. That remains the case up to this day. But they also create fascinating interaction. If you look at the, at the, at the Vietnamese situation and then compare it to the French, there's one important difference, though. The Roman Empire fell. It was never able to reconstitute itself. The Chinese Empire fell, but it rose, it fell, and it rose. The Vietnamese, like the Koreans, 
like the Japanese, like the Thais as well, they've always had to deal with this huge empire reconstituting itself on the north. Whereas German tribes, the Gallic tribes, English tribes, if I could put it that way, uh, they didn't have to deal with a Roman empire coming back to dominate them, to challenge them, and so that they could recast themselves as small emperors, small czars, small kaisers. The Vietnamese would do something similar. They would try to make themselves the, the smaller emperors. But the problem is the Chinese were, if I can put it this way, still there. So when they tried to reconstitute their own empire. They called themselves emperors, as the Chinese would call themselves emperors. The problem was China was still there, and China could challenge them. I think Vietnam has been so locked in the wars and has been so politicized during the wars, but also it's just this politicization, this mobilization uh, has been projected into the past, and it's exceptionalized Vietnam uh, to the extent that its history is somehow different from others. Whereas one of the things I try to do in my book, and this is why I come back to this kind of Roman, European, Chinese, Vietnamese comparison is that it's quite similar. Obviously, there's all sorts of differences. I want your listeners to know that. On the ground, Vietnam is not France. China is not the Roman Empire. But in these wider comparisons allowed me to, how would I put it, de-exceptionalize, if you like, Vietnamese history, render it more complex, hopefully, and this will be up to the readers to determine, to do it as clearly as possible so that readers can discover, like I discovered, what I think is one of the, well, I don't want to say the most fascinating country. Every country is fascinating, but at least so that they can see why it's so fascinating, why it's so exciting. Chris, could I ask you, what were the main intellectual influences that shaped the way that you write about Vietnam's history in this book? There's quite a few. I think I would say one of the, one of the first influences was indeed uh, Benedict Anderson. He's influenced a lot of us in Southeast Asian history and further beyond, but there's no doubt that he greatly influenced me with uh, imagined communities and the way I looked at nationalism and perhaps the critical approach which I, I took to nationalism. So you know, I discovered him in the 1990s when I was writing Vietnam or Indochina. He was very influential in my thinking in terms of uh, asking that question, why did the Vietnamese not become Indochinese? if the Javanese were able to become uh, Indonesians. And so in the course of trying to respond to that question, I relied heavily on Benedict Anderson's kind of critical approach to nationalism, but also something which I think is important. He was never saying that nationalism is false. He was never making fun of nationalism. What he was doing was drawing our attention to the process, to how we go about how official historians and non-official historians go about creating the path. So I, I think that was one big influence for me. A second influence would be my time in France when I did discover what we perhaps call world history, maybe in a French way. I was able to follow the seminars of Denis Lombard. And Denis Lombard was uh, himself deeply influenced by his father, who worked with uh, Fernand Braudel. And Braudel, of course, wrote the, the books on the, on the Mediterranean. Uh, and he was one of the, the first in France to, to go beyond borders to look at connections uh, overland, but in particular connections overseas. So I guess through Denis Lombard, who's a, a specialist of Indonesia, and a specialist as well uh, of Southeast Asia, but also someone who started his career in Southern China. Maybe some listeners don't know that. So I tapped in to what we might call global history, or some might refer to as transnational. I won't try to define those terms, but the idea of 
going beyond nation states. So on the one hand, I had Benedict Anderson, who was focused on the construction of the nation state. And on the other hand, I had someone like Denis Lombard behind me, pushing me to look at how history uh, is constructed in in ways that go beyond nations and states themselves. And of course, that's something which uh, I've, I've continued to develop in my own work. Of course, in France, I was heavily influenced by my teachers, in particular at the University of Paris 7, Pierre Boucher, Danny Nemery. I did my PhD with Nguyen Thiang at the, at the Sorbonne, the École Pratique des Hautes Études, and so I, I owe all of them a, a debt as well. Chris, at this point, we'll pause briefly for a sponsor's message. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little more about Vietnamese historiography. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Chris Gosher about his new book, Vietnam, A New History. Chris, one of the things I really like about the book is and the way you write it. You write it in a way that suggests that Vietnam's traumatic modern history could have been different. For example, if only the French had responded more positively to demands for greater Vietnamese representation, that the bloodshed and destruction of 1945 to 1975 could have been avoided. Was that your intention to make Vietnamese history look as though it could have turned out differently? That's a very astute remark. No one's made that remark before. And I have to admit that I'm not a big fan of counterfactual history. And I would say humbly that I I feel like I know French Indochina, the colonial period of Indochina, but also in France itself. And I guess I do owe a debt to my wife, who is a specialist of French colonial ideology, and to Daniel Emery and Pierre Bourchot, where I was forced to study the French side as well as the Vietnamese or the Indochinese sides. And it is true in the course of writing those chapters on the colonial period, perhaps pushed by Daniel Emery in particular, that I was surprised by just how important the French failure to introduce a modicum of colonial democracy like the British in India or even the Americans in the Philippines, you know, with the Commonwealth in 1935. And I could go on with the comparisons, but it was also in developing those comparisons that it dawned on me here that the French didn't do this. And we're talking about the Third Republic, which makes it even more fascinating. So this became something of a thread in my book. You know, as the French would say, malgré moi, in spite of myself, I didn't set out to do it. But in the course of writing the book, it dawned on me that this failure of republicanism in Vietnam goes back to the late 19th century and runs up to the present, as you can also see in the last chapter of that. I do, and I intentionally do it. I think I need to be honest with my listeners. I I, I do weave this thread through the book because I think it's still a problem for Vietnam to this day. You're right, Patrick. This became a major theme. And it is true. And I have to admit this. I'm not a big fan of counterfactual because I do think that counterfactual, if you look at it closely, those who practice it, it tends to show us more about their own politics than it does about history itself. And so if I'm going to be true to myself, it is possible that that thread, and you're the first to bring it up, probably says something about me as well. I did go out of my way not to go overboard on it, but I do believe that the failure of the French to introduce 
a modicum of colonial democracy is a problem. Don't get me wrong. The British, if they created the, the Indian Congress, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, or if the Americans, they created the Commonwealth, this was reformist policies designed either to hold off decolonization or to allow decolonization on the terms of the colonizers. And that's what empire builders do all the time. But what struck me and which fascinates me still to this day is what was it about the French experience that made them so scared even to reform. And that's something which Daniel Emery has worked on. Agathe Larcher, who is my, my better half, has worked on that. So I, I owe these people, too, a great deal of uh, gratitude, uh, although I wouldn't want to hold them responsible for the conclusions I make in the book. If I could touch on a, on a related point, it's kind of ironic that even you know, in the West these days, Ho Chi Minh and the communists appear to carry the mantle of anti-colonial nationalism. One of the, the most, I think, prominent and important features of your book is that it shows that there were numerous non-communist nationalisms in Vietnam. Can you discuss these? Right. This goes back to your point. There, there was a, a plurality of possibilities, just like there was a plurality of possibilities in the Dutch uh, Indies, American Philippines, uh, British India, and elsewhere. There was many groups in the 1920s and 1930s who were trying to carve out a certain political system, a certain future, a certain p- political future of an independent nation for Vietnam. The problem in Vietnam, and I get back to your question, is that the French, by refusing to allow any sort of political liberalism, even within a colonial context, sidelined, marginalized, and weakened these groups. And to a certain extent, they strengthened more radical forms. And you see that in the late 1920s, because they didn't even trust their most faithful collaborators. And I'm using Ralph Smith's term for the Constitutionalist Party. And this was, you know, the Constitutionalists, to some extent, it's, it's, you know, they were very much inspired by what Nehru, Gandhi, and so many others were doing with the British, with the, the Indian Congress. That's, to some extent, what they wanted to do was to create some sort of a constitutionalist. I mean, it's no accident that they named their party that constitutionalist Congress with their eye on future independence and decolonization, working with the French, uh, as others did, too, towards a, a more peaceful decolonization, if I can put it that way. Unfortunately, things didn't work out so well in Vietnam. And, and one reason is, is because the French, after having lost their hold on their Indochinese colony at the end of World War II, come back to Indochina, much like the Dutch come back as well, humiliated, having been dominated in Europe and having been overthrown in Southeast Asia. But they come back too because they want their empires back, but they need their empires back. They want them back for prestige, for their own nationalist reasons, but also for economic reasons, diplomatic reasons, etc. The problem is there is that they are confronted with one of the more radical forms, uh, which in my opinion, they contributed to creating, which is the the Vietnamese uh, Communist Party. The problem again in 1945, 1946, 1947, to be honest, until the end in 1954, is that the French are unwilling to allow, but even to conceptualize themselves to think of decolonization as a possibility after 1945. So as you can see where I'm coming to is that once again, they pinned or they, they, they marginalized or they compromised Vietnamese non-communist anti-colonialists who wanted nothing to do with communism. And let me be real clear on that point. Anti-communism is not a Vietnamese historical phenomenon. 
anti-communism is as much as communism or republicanism or any other sort of ism, at least for the 19th, 20th century. It, it, it's a bigger phenomenon of the 20th century. So anti-communism is, it runs deep in Vietnam as it does in other countries as well. My point being is that you do have a group of Vietnamese anti-colonialists, not necessarily anti-French, anti-colonialists. They want independence, but they don't want communism. The problem is that the French, they are going to, to box them in, so to speak. And of course, then you have the Cold War and the Americans are going to make a very important decision. They're going to say better to back the French to contain communism now coming from China, supporting Ho Chi Minh, rather than risk losing the French and their military power at this crucial point in the defense of, of the world and of Southeast Asia via the containment policy. And from that point, anyone who collaborates with the French or the Americans are going to be discredited when, in fact, if you look at this more closely, coming out of this longer anti-communist, if you like, or Republican or non-communist nationalism, if you look at that coming out of the late 19th century as a parallel track to communism, as a parallel track to republicanism, uh, a parallel track to the monarchy, things are more complicated. Because this leads actually onto my next question, and it's about Vietnamese historiography, and especially the history writing about the Vietnam War. It's a very contentious field. Conventionally, as you know, there are two opposing schools of thought on Vietnamese history. Can you tell the listeners perhaps what they are and how you stand in relation to them? As you say, I think there's there's two major schools of thought which emerged during the Vietnam War. So it wasn't a post-Vietnam War thing. It actually emerged during the Vietnam War. Roughly speaking, on the one side, it is those who support the reasons for which the Americans went into Vietnam and that was to stop communism and that, you know, Ho Chi Minh was a communist and that therefore the Americans were justified to go into Vietnam in order to support the Republic of Vietnam. So this 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 group of anti-colonialists, non-communists, once they finally got rid of the French, the Americans switched back them with the person we all know of, uh, Ngo Dinh Diem who ran the Republic of Vietnam between 1954 and 1963 when he was assassinated. Uh, so this school is the one which which supports the American war, so to speak. On the other hand, during the, the Vietnam War, you had a group of intellectuals, a group of journalists, uh, a group of historians, writers who contested that version, who contested the, the American justification of the war. And there you're going to have historians and journalists, for example, like Francis Fitzgerald, uh, who published at the height of the war in 1971 or 1972, Fire in the Lake. And her idea was to show that the Americans were involved in an illegitimate war. They were going against the tide of history. And the tide of history was incarnated by the communists represented by Ho Chi Minh. Was he communist? Yes, the school will agree, but he was first and foremost a nationalist who incarnated this deep-seated tradition of uh, anti-colonialist, anti-patriotic resistance to foreign invaders. The Americans were the foreign invaders, therefore they had no reason being there. Therefore, I'm simplifying here a little bit. I hope your listeners will accept that. And therefore, the Americans should not be in Vietnam. They should not be fighting against nationalists. So you have these two schools. One which is supportive of the American war because actually Ho Chi Minh was a communist. He was a member of the Comintern, which was created in 1919 by the Soviets to promote world communism. And he wanted to propagate it uh, once in power 
into Laos and Cambodia and to further uh, into Southeast Asia, and that he was supportive of the Chinese. And then again, the others which are, are saying that, no, this is not true. Ho was a nationalist. It was all just uh, the means. Uh, communism was a means to get to an end, and that end was nationalist independence, which came in 1975. We see debates like this for World War One. If you look at the, the French and the Germans who started the war, this war over history, I mean, it mobilizes historians. I think that's something that a lot of people who write about Vietnam forget is the extent to which very divisive wars like the Vietnam War, deeper the divisiveness, the more contested the war. And I'm borrowing ideas from my colleague Andrew Barros here at the University of Quebec. But the more contested the war the higher the level of mobilization of the historians. And this is, I think, a very important point. And you see this in the battle over who started World War I between the French uh, and the Germans. And that battle will go on after the guns go silent in 1918, after Versailles in 1919. It is a war of historiographies. It's a war over history, but it's also a war among historians themselves. And I see something very similar that's been going on with the Vietnam War. The war ended 1954 for the French, 1975 for the Americans, somewhere in the early 1990s for the the communists, if I can put it that way, the Chinese and the Vietnamese. But if you look at all three of these wars, but in particular the Vietnam War, it continues to mobilize journalists, intellectuals, those who lived through it, those who were in the streets for or against. And that war, in my opinion, is still going on in terms of these two schools of thought, which I tried to explain. It is true that in my book and in some of the other writings I have done and which I'm, I'm doing right now, is that we need to move on. We need to demobilize. I think that historians in favor or against one of these schools, they need to reflect a little bit more deeply on the nature of their craft and on the weight of the present over the way in which they write about the past. I think there's a need to demobilize. Some of the historians involved in these debates need to lay down their arms. One of the outcomes, I guess, or the effects of this view of Vietnam as being the victim of sort of American imperialism, or if you take it back further, French Japanese or Chinese imperialism means that we sort of overlook uh, Vietnam's role as itself an imperial power. You touched on this briefly earlier, but could you perhaps uh, draw this point out a little bit? Again, I get back to my point about de-exceptionalizing. We've been so programmed because of the French, the American, and the Chinese invasion of Vietnam that we have presented Vietnam as a victim, which on many occasions they were, don't get me wrong. But the problem is if you take this too far, you're unable to pick up on more complex patterns in Vietnamese history. And I think if you exceptionalize them, then they're not able to be actors themselves. And so one of the things that I wanted to do in my book with this argument about Vietnam or the Vietnamese as empire builders themselves is that that's not that surprising. They're involved in this sort of state building as much as anybody else. So I did attach quite a bit of importance to this argument showing that empire states are not the unique reserve of just the French and the British in the 19th and 20th centuries. I was influenced by some of the writing by Frederick Cooper, for example, Empires in World History, and many others who show that empire states, to a large extent, are the type of states which existed for much of world history, at least until the 19th or 20th century, when nation states came into play. 
And some people would argue that empire states are, are still in motion in, in certain parts of the world. I wanted to show that Vietnam, once it exited the Chinese empire, in particular in the, the 15th century and thereafter, uh, much like the Americans when they exited the British empire you know, in the late 18th century, each of them went on to build their own empires. It's not a question, is it right or is it wrong? It's one of the ways by which people organize states, organize society, uh, and, and exercise power. That was one of the themes that I wanted to show, especially, you know, from the 15th century and again, you know, from the 17th century, 18th century and 19th centuries to show how the Vietnamese moving from the north to the south, but even the Vietnamese, when they divided among themselves, one part in the south continued to build, you know, a, a colonial state into the Mekong Delta, while the other was much more focused in the north. Or combined from 1802, when it was the end of the civil war between these two states, then you have, uh, under Ming Mang and, and others, you have an empire state that develops, uh, which looks a lot more like French Indochina than it does the Vietnam S that we see today. This has caused me problems. I have been criticized for this idea that the Vietnamese had a bigger imperial project. But again, I think that makes for a more complicated story, but it also makes for a much more interesting one. In particular, when you look at that map in the 1830s, when a large chunk of Cambodia and a large chunk of Laos are considered to be part of a wider Vietnamese uh, empire. I was going to ask, how has your book been received within Vietnam uh, and by uh, Vietnamese scholars more generally? Favorably overall, it is true that um, when I tried to send my book to friends in Vietnam, it was confiscated in the ports of entry, and I was able to determine why it was confiscated and it was um, banned because it was considered to be distorting Vietnamese history as defined by the Vietnamese government. So at the official level, I've run into problems. I would say that, how would I put it, on the non-official level, is, uh, it's been uh, well-received. You know, I had a very critical but honest review of it in the Journal of Vietnamese Studies by a historian in Vietnam, for which I'm, I'm very grateful. It's, it's, it's been a little, it's been both ways, an official reaction and then a reaction among historians themselves, which has been, I, I would say, if you don't mind, a little bit more favorable. Chris, the book ends, I think, on quite an optimistic note with an extended discussion of republicanism in modern Vietnamese history. Why is republicanism important for understanding Vietnam's modern history? Well, it gets back to the excellent question you posed a moment ago, is that I do see a thread running through this. The thread everyone has talked about, or the threads that everyone's talked about, has always been nationalism and communism. I tried to weave a third thread through the book from the 19th century to the, the present, because I, I actually think that that thread is there. And that is a Republican thread. We'll see where it goes. Uh, at the time at which I finished the book, I wasn't saying that Republicanism was going to be victorious in Vietnam, but uh, I perhaps saw a little bit of a, an opening. I'm not sure it's there to Day, we'll see. That's the danger that you always have when you're a historian and you try to predict what's going to happen. But yes, that problematic is still there in Vietnam. And the point I was trying to make is that this is not some sort of a Western imposed problematic. This is what many authoritarian states would like us to believe, not just in Asia, but elsewhere. But it's part of global history. It's part of global exchanges. I mean, if you make the argument that republicanism is foreign uh, to Vietnam, then you must necessarily make the argument that communism is just as foreign to Vietnam as republicanism. I would never make either of those arguments 
argument. The argument is I'm making is that Vietnam was connected to the rest of the world way before 1858, uh, but there's been an acceleration of those connections which occurred at the 19th century, and they continue at an ever accelerating pace to this day. Chris, if I could ask one perhaps broader question about history writing, really. Your book's been praised by scholarly experts in the field of Vietnamese history, as well as the mass media. You've got The Guardian and The Economist both reviewed the book very positively. So did you aim to write a book that was accessible both to scholars as well as a broader public, and how did you pull it off? (laughs) Short answer, yes, I don't know. This was one of the very attractive propositions which the editor, Simon Winder at Penguin, first made to me when he asked me to write this general history. And he said, I would really like to have a general history of Vietnam, which can speak to both the general audience as well as to the specialist audience. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that's a tall order. For me, there's a second factor that was involved, and this explains why I accepted this challenge, is that I had come off writing a historical dictionary of the Indochina War. I finished that right at the moment where Simon Winder said, why don't you try a general history? He didn't know that I had just finished writing the dictionary. And I said to myself, let's give this a try. It's important to be able to reach a wider audience as well. Historians do need to be able to communicate with a wider audience. And I do believe that. And I did accept for that reason. I said, I can't just write a dictionary for the specialist. I also need to be able to write a history which can appeal to a wider audience. So I went from one extreme to the other. I saw it as an intellectual challenge. You know, it will be up to readers to judge how well I've done. I think some specialists from the reviews I received, they're not convinced. Others are. And uh, that's the nature of the game. I'm sure you and your listeners would agree when you write a general book like this. I have no problem with specialists taking me to account, and I'll try to improve the book in later editions. I have been pleased by responses I've received from students and from general readers uh, about the pleasure and uh, the stimulation which they've, they've gotten from the book, which leads me to believe that though I told a complicated story, I perhaps, I say this modestly, with, was able to communicate a little bit of the fascination which I see in, in the history of Vietnam. Before we conclude, Chris, could you tell us whether you're working on a new project and what that uh, project is? I am. I'm working on two projects now. I've been working on the Indochina War, the war between, let's say, the French and the, the, the French and the Vietnamese communists between 1945 and 1954. I am writing a book on that specific war for a specialist and a general audience. And um, I'm looking at the nature of the Vietnamese state, which was born of war and which was made by war and which was able to use war in order to further its goals, not only in terms of defeating the French, but in terms of creating a certain type of state. So I'm, I'm quite interested in this book and the idea of war, state making and social mobilization. And then I've uh, recently agreed to write, again, a general history of the the wars for Indochina from 1940 to 1991. And this is a book I'll be doing for basic books in New York, Uh, a big general history where I'm going to combine a lot of the new research and then perhaps some of my own ideas in order to, to show what a demobilized history of the wars for Vietnam might give us. I'm hoping to, to perhaps contribute to the ending of the Indochina Wars <laughs> with this book, <laughs> the, the Wars Among Historians. I'm sure that won't work, but uh, I'm, I'm going to give it a try nonetheless. 
we need to give peace a chance, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Chris Grosha, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Vietnam, A New History. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you to your listeners as well. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also enjoy listening to Max Hastings talk about his new book, Vietnam, An Epic Tragedy, 1945 to 1975, or to Peter Zinnemann on his new book, Vietnamese Colonial Republican, The Political Vision of Vu Drong Phuong. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes.